He's a career law enforcement officer in America's largest police department, working as a detective. He gives an insider's look into the dangers and violence in investigating narcotics and drug enforcement. Plus, he launched a web-based fundraising platform for first responders and military. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling from New York, we have NYPD Detective Robert Garland on the phone. Robert, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a long time coming. I've been aware of Robert and what he's been doing for quite a while. And it's just one of those things where I would say my people had to reach out to his people, but I don't have people. I don't think he does either. We finally touched base and we made this happen. Thank you. <laughs> yes, no, it's great that we connected. Robert has a great organization called Fund the First. By the way, go to fundthefirst.com, watch their 30-second video about what makes them different, uh, and, and you'll be sold right away. Tell us about Fund the First, what it does, and why. Sure. So I'm sure everyone is familiar, and our listeners and you as well, are familiar with the crowdfunding space, and there's always a need to raise money. Whether you're using platforms like GoFundMe, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, whatever it is, but what we have is a unique process for our first responders, military, and medical professionals to raise money without having to worry about any scams, any fraud, anyone stealing their identity to raise money. So at FundTheFirst.com, we have a full integration with ID.me. Now, our crowdfunding platform allows for anyone to start a campaign, but what's unique is the beneficiary is always going to be a verified first responder, military, or medical professional, thanks to our partnership with ID.me. Since our launch, and we've only been around for a couple of months, we launched in July of 2020 after a couple of years of development. Since our launch now, we now have over 140 fundraising campaigns that have surpassed $920,000 raised and is growing every single day. So it's been an incredible experience, and the best part about it is we're giving back in a true and honest way, and that's what's really great about it. What I love about this, I personally, through the Law Enforcement Today radio show Facebook page, also other forms of social media i get hit on daily by someone saying hey would you share this fundraising campaign hey would you do this you know and i want to help i really do but i'm also aware that a lot of these are not truthful a lot of these are scams yeah you're right you know what you there's never really any way to tell hey is my money going to a true and honest source and we see it time and time again and i'll, I'll give two examples and then I'll go into the story of why we actually started this. So first example I'm going to give is, is something that happened a few years ago. Detective Joseph Seals in New Jersey was killed in the line of duty. So, so sad. Uh, he leaves behind five children and his wife. When he was killed, 
about six fundraising campaigns went live on one of these platforms. And immediately, the union, the FLP, their police department came out and said, do not donate to any of these campaigns. We don't know which one is the real one. We don't want your money not going to the right source. And it's so true. Anybody could try to benefit off of someone else's hardship and immediately throw up a fundraiser and say, oh, I'm going to raise money for X, Y, Z. And you know what? I'm going to give it to that person. But are you actually giving it to that person? And there's no real way of telling that. And that's why our platform at Fund the First is so important, because it's verified. You know that the beneficiary is fully, fully verified, and that money is only going to that person. So that's one example. Another example actually just happened uh, about two weeks ago. Someone came to us, and I'm not going to say what department it was from or, or the exact details. Someone came to us and shot us an email and said, listen, I want to start a, a Fund the First on your platform to raise money for someone that has cancer. And we said, sure, absolutely, let's do it. And they said, well, there's, there's one problem. There's already a GoFundMe that went up. And I said, that's fine. You could still do one on our platform as well. But now it will just have an extra layer of security so people that donate to yours at least know that the money is going to that intended source. And he goes, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll think about it. Let me do it. So he gives me a call back a couple hours later. He goes, I'm not going to do it on your platform. I, I can't handle the stress that's going on right now. And I go, well, what's happening? He goes, someone else decided to start another GoFundMe for the same person. And now those two GoFundMes are battling with each other online to see who can raise the most money. That's disgusting. That's not what this is about. No. You're not out there to have a competition with people to raise money for someone else's hardship. And you know what? The person that, that the money was intended for, she was disgusted by this. She was disgusted. And that's not something that, it, that anyone should be proud of. And you know what? It's really unfortunate. You see it time and time again. And yes, people do have the right intentions at heart, but then it ends up getting misconstrued, right? And it goes in the wrong direction. And that's really why ours is so important. If, if the beneficiary, let's say, is myself, because I can be a beneficiary on our platform as, as active law enforcement or retired, someone else can't turn around and start a campaign for me as well. There's only going to be one campaign on our platform. The other thing I like about what you do, and I'm a little familiar, it's fundthefirst.com, by the way, is, and I don't want to mention names, but there's so many other crowdfunding groups out there, uh, web-based, and there's a lot of good intentions, but there's also political, politically motivated, we're not going to do this one because we don't like the way this police officers, but whatever it might be. So it always leaves a slight distaste in my mouth that they they get to pick and choose who the winners are and then you never really know whether or not that money actually goes to the family correct i mean listen we have a strict vetting process as well so it's not like when you start a campaign the campaign goes live immediately our team vets every single campaign to make sure that the, the stories don't read as if you know there's a different intention involved so we make sure that everything is true and honest as well. And if we have questions, and we like to be even more personal, and we reach out to every campaign organizer and beneficiary anyway, but if we have questions on stuff, we're going to make sure that it's, it's organized properly and everything's straightened out. The only thing our platform does not raise money for is legal fees. We tend to stay away from that because there is a large political nature when it comes to those type of things, so we want to stay away from that. But with anything else with our platform, illness, surgery, death, catastrophic loss, you know, whether it be a storm, a hurricane, a flood, a good cause. People doing to toy drives. You can do a toy drive on our platform. 
equipment for a department. How many, you know, I'm sure you see it every single day with what you do. How many departments are cross-country, police, firefighters, even EMS, that they don't have the proper amount of funds to do what they need to do? You know, so that's where our platform comes in handy as well. And then nonprofit organizations, they can jump on our platform and verify with their EIN address and phone number, and we can cross-check all of that. And we'll verify nonprofits to do fundraisers on our platform. And then there's business ventures, which is actually a really, really cool feature. We allow for people, and there's so many first responders, military, and medical professionals that don't understand the capital space of raising capital and going the extra dis- distance to really create a full business, but they have an idea, right? Let's say it's a, a t-shirt business, a coin, whatever it may be, a flashlight. They have these things and they start doing something, but instead of raising money for equity, because we're, we, we don't do that on our platform, they do a donation-based, and they give back a, an incentive. You donate X amount of dollars, it helps our company grow, and we'll also give you a kickback of an incentive, whatever it may be. So it's really great, and we're, just, we're, we're fortunate that we were able to put this out there for everybody and to be able to get on radio shows like yours and all over the place. Check it out. Fundthefirst.com. That's F-U-N-D, thefirst.com. We're talking with Robert Garland. He is an NYPD police department detective. We're going to talk about his career. We're going to talk about law enforcement and more. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Being switched on is a daily decision, a moment-by-moment choice. The Switched On Life podcast provides life-saving tips to help you stay safe in all aspects of life. Go to Switched On Life to learn more. And remember, stay switched on. Return of conversation with NYPD Detective Robert Garland on the Law Enforcement Today show. He's also, he's got a pretty fancy title, CEO of fundthefirst.com. That's fundthefirst.com. Uh, they do fundraising for police, law enforcement, other first responders, military, and uh, verified um, charity organizations as well. That's fundthefirst.com. One of the things I've seen, and, and my wife wasn't aware of, and most Americans and most people listening to the show don't seem to be aware of, is that when you have a law enforcement officer, we'll use that example because that's the background I come from, that's what you do, that is killed in line of duty, for example. The department will always do their best to take care of that that individual and that family. City Hall, the accountants, the lawyers, the bean counters, when they get involved, everything changes. For so many people across the United States, when an officer is killed in line of duty, the first thing that happens is the family loses all their health insurance, and it puts them in immediate financial bind. Especially imagine having like three or four kids, and your health insurance is gone. Your paycheck is gone. All the insurances and all the stuff that, that kicks in takes a long time to start flowing. Has that been your experience? From what I've seen, yeah, I've, I've seen departments have, the, have those types of experience, experiences, yes. And I think the smaller departments that aren't used to having this happen, and it's no, through no fault of their own, that they're just not used to it. They don't know what to expect. NYPD, Baltimore, where I came from, I'm sad to say we're used to this. We've been having this happen for a long time. And the worst case scenario is when they're killed in the line of duty. However, there's also a distinct group of, of law enforcement officers that are severely injured and their financial needs oftentimes are far worse than those who are killed. Correct. You're absolutely correct. And it's really, really unfortunate. Is that what you're encountering a lot of the fundraising campaigns for injured officers? 
So yeah, we we see. I mean, you got to think about it. I, I'm actually injured myself. I, I got hurt in the line of duty back in 2019, and I've been out. But a, a big financial burden that you, that you face is you're not getting the overtime that you could have been getting. You know, and that's something you're not being able to provide for your family in that manner. But also medical bills. I mean, for the most part, if it's a line of duty injury, your department is going to cover it, depending on where you are. Uh, line of duty death. You know, as unfortunate as it is. The departments will do the best that they that they can, but that's where these fundraisers really come in come in for a need and, and an assistance. It helps make up for those gaps, and it's really important. And it's not so much always about the money because, you know, families that's not the first thing on their mind. They're thinking about a loved one that just got hurt or the one that they lost, and now they have that support system coming in. They have thousands, hundreds, or thousands of people all of a sudden flooding these campaigns with comments, with saying how much they support and love the family. And that's what you need, because you know this. The second you stop, that's when everything comes down on your shoulders. You know, you need that extra support system. That's another thing that our platform provides. Thank you for doing that. And thanks to the entire team for doing that. It's very much appreciated. An old guy like me, where I am, I see it. I had a guest on the show a long time. I actually have had many guests on the show that have been through this. But this one particular officer, uh, he was shot multiple times with an AK-47 and was out of work recuperating from surgeries and physical therapies and everything else the department did the right thing they eventually gave him a light duty type position but in the meantime the first thing that happened was he went on like a workman's comp pay scale so it was roughly 70 75 percent of your pay and he lost all his overtime as a result because it was such a long process for him he lost his entire home Everything was gone because they couldn't pay the bills. He was living off overtime and his full salary, and it just couldn't happen. He couldn't make it work. Yeah, that's that's so tragic. That's horrible. Yeah, and so it, wow. I, I see young guys all the time, and we'll get back to everybody else in a moment, but I tell them, don't live beyond your means. Don't live on overtime. Uh, and it doesn't matter what your career choice is it, because overtime isn't always going to be there. And if that's what you need to make it, man – I hope it does not come where you can't do it. You got injured. How long have you been out? I got injured in 2019, so I, I'm still at work. You know, I'm I'm what's called restricted duty, but I'm still I'm still working. You know, still still going in every day. I spent my the majority of my career in narcotics. So that's where I ended up getting hurt, um, which was great. And listen, you know, would you say that I live above your means? I saw so many guys living above their means, and you know what? You're getting the overtime source, so why not? People start to do that. And I never did that, thankfully. My wife is a police officer as well, and we never lived above our means in the event of something happening like this. And lo and behold, you you wound up being injured for a while. You know, your career mirrors mine in a lot of ways. I I did uniform patrol for a while, then we went to what we called a uniform operations unit or flex or crime suppression, and then uh, plain clothes, worked narcotics, got detailed at DEA. And there's something about working narcotics that... They tell me once it gets in your blood, it's awful hard to get out. I don't know if it's the excitement. <laughs> I don't know what it was, Robert, but I fell in love with it. Yeah, that it will never leave my blood. It's there. I actually got I got a call from a guy actually down in Baltimore yesterday asking me questions about stuff, and I'm like, listen, I don't investigate that anymore, but I'll refer you. And then all of a sudden, he kicked into overdrive, and I'm like, well, you should be doing this, 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 this. And then I'm like, hold on, I need to take a step back. I'm not there anymore. And you're right. It's it's in our blood. It's really in our blood. There's something 
when I try to tell people about police work, I tell them the routine answer. You know, it's about 95% sheer boredom. And then you have a moment where you go to full on adrenaline. It's life or death. And then it's back to boredom. And most of the time when we had like hot calls in uniform, you didn't have time to think about the threat and everything. You, you're going through this checklist in your mind of things you're supposed to do. However, the main exception to that, and I found myself praying all the time in, a, in unmarked cars, was going to do high-risk drug raids because you knew going in the door that there was a high potential for violence and gunfire, and it could always be bad. My favorite part of narcotics was ex- executing search warrants. That was the absolute best. I loved it. We executed hundreds of search warrants, and especially when you're that lead, when you're the lead one in and on the door, that adrenaline rush is incredible. I mean, my first, my first search warrant ever being the lead, you know, that's a totally different adrenaline rush. But as you do it more and more, you're more focused and you more, you understand everything that's going on in your scenario and your team to make sure that everyone's safe. When you're doing a raid, you're first in. When you're a rookie and you're doing a first off ground, it's, it's all fast. It's all confusion. Everybody's making a lot of noise. Did you find over time that your, your vision was starting to slow down and you start seeing things as they happen? My first time, no. It happened so fast, it was a complete blur. I'll be honest. It was a complete, complete blur. We were, my first search warrant was actually executed in um, a small housing project, uh, basically in, in Midtown in New York. And it happened so fast. It was an SRO, so a one-door bedroom. And boom, door was hit. Subject was right there, done. Um, but I've had ones where, yeah, you, you hit that vision. Everything slows down. It's almost like it's in slow motion. I ran a giant wire case across the whole East Coast. So executing those warrants and coming down to that was really, really incredible. We're going to talk about that and get more details when we return to our conversation with Robert Garland from the NYPD. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. When you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. When you get there, click like and follow. As click, like, and follow Law Enforcement Today radio show on Facebook. We're going to take a short break. We will be right back. Are your supervisors adding to low morale? If you answered yes, but you don't know how to fix the morale problem, start with my book, A Beginner's Guide to Leadership by Eddie Molina. Available on Amazon or on my website, eddiemolina.com. That's E-D-D-I-E-M-O-L-I-N-A.com. for a conversation with Robert Garland, NYPD detective. We're talking about narcotics investigation, drug raids. Real quick story. Uh, I, I remember doing a drug raid on, on an old house that was converted into multiple apartments. And I was the lead guy. Early on, when you do these raids, everything happens so fast. And then your mind starts to slow down and pick up small things. I hit the door. The guy was sitting right beside the door. He took off running towards the bedroom, which I knew in my mind is not good. He tries to slam the door behind him. I knock the door open. He dives on the bed in like the Superman position. And I really know something bad is happening now. On the other side of the bed on the floor was a chrome-plated Thompson-style 45 submachine gun, semi-automatic. And the fight was on over that. I can remember thinking to myself, because it's, like, it's almost like slow motion, this is going to get bad if I don't find a way to control this guy quickly and i didn't have time to 
tell the rest of the team. Eventually, he noticed they came in. And fortunately, no one was hurt. No one was injured. No one was shot. And he was controlled, subdued, and everything was successful. That's the point I'm getting at is the adrenaline rush was huge going in and seeing it happen, taking the necessary action. And this is what happens the vast majority of time on raids. Police don't use force. They don't shoot people. It's an oddity where that happens. Correct. Right. Correct. Did you guys make a lot of noise when you ran in? <laughs> uh, hitting the doors sometimes. I mean, we, you know, as soon as we hit that door, screaming, search warrant, search warrant, search warrant. I mean, there's been multiple doors that we've hit that don't open right away. So it gives the, the subjects time to really maneuver and start running, jumping out windows, throwing things down toilets. So sometimes there's a lot of noise. Yeah. It, it can be a real rush. And uh, we, we did a lot of screaming and yelling. And again, that's all designed to get people off their game because we didn't have access to things like flashbang and all the, the sexy SWAT stuff. It was just a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of police running in. <laughs> so we went to break. You started talking about a, a large wiretap and a large extensive investigation that went beyond your city, correct? Correct. So it was called Operation Brick and Mortar. And it was actually a gambling operation that had a lot of drugs involved, guns, trade, you know, across different, multiple, multiple states. And I stumbled across the investigation on accident, completely on accident. This was in the news, so I'm more than happy to speak about it. It would happen that I closed the application in 2018, so there's a lot of subjects in jail now. So how it started was actually from a subject that I was buying drugs from. We were buying cocaine from him. And the location was a fairly large uh, home right in the middle of the city. Well, we found out that the people were renting it, were running a gambling ring on the inside. So one guy leads to another guy who ends up running a whole drug ring on the Lower East Side, on East 5th Street in that whole area. So there were a lot of drugs coming out of there, a lot of cocaine, a lot of heroin. We bought a lot of weight heroin and cocaine. So after doing that, we ended up going up on a wire. And if you run wire cases before you know that these things explode. And this actually led into my business career because I saw how much I could manage on my mind. Originally, this case ended up stemming out to about 145 subjects. And they went everywhere from Florida to Georgia to New York to Massachusetts, Connecticut. There's one in Puerto Rico that we never got. But we narrowed it down and we ended up the day of the takedown in August of 2018. We ended up taking down 38 subjects. And there was uh, one subject that was transporting drugs from Florida. He ended up uh, transporting the drugs from Florida into D.C., where he would do a lot of pickups and then come from D.C. to New York to distribute highway cocaine. Uh, another subject was distributing heroin from Yonkers. And then the gambling ring was being operated from Massachusetts and parts of Georgia. So it was a large, large-scale operation, millions of dollars involved, um, and a lot of drugs. So it was a lot of fun to be able to oversee that to be able to put together these search warrant teams. The day of the takedown, I was overwhelmed. We had, we put together about 300 cops, all detectives from narcotics and uh, different units throughout the city. And I also had Homeland involved. During this case, I got credentials with Homeland Security. I got credentials with uh, DTF. So I, I, was, I was heavily credentialed with, with all different departments. I became an expert witness to Special Narcotics New York City for uh, SNC to, to be able to testify. So it was really big. It was really, you know, really incredible to see all these people get taken down and take that off the streets for a moment. Because we all know they're going to come off the streets, but someone else is going to rise up. It's like whack-a-mole. They pop right back up. Someone else is ready to fill this. But here's the thing that a lot of people don't seem to get. 
you know, and I don't, I avoid the whole arguments about legalization. If you want to, go ahead. I, look, I, I don't drink, I don't use drugs. It doesn't matter to me. However, there is a lot of violence and gunplay that goes on with these these drug gangs. And I'm not talking about the big high-end ones like you. I'm just talking about the neighborhood crews. Yeah. So what's, what's funny is this, this case actually stemmed from a marijuana buy. We bought weed to start this case. And then it ended up going into buying heroin, cocaine. We were gambling in the club. We were actually gambling using cryptocurrency also. And this actually stemmed into another case that I started running where I was buying cryptocurrency uh, buying drugs online using cryptocurrency. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with that scene. I've been in for quite a couple of years, so I understand transaction IDs, how to track that to IP addresses and all that kind of stuff. But it's, I mean, I'm really not in favor of the legalization because it starts, it has, it starts from somewhere. You know, in this, this case like this, we would have never got into this ring without a marijuana buy. And how violent were they? So these guys, we didn't tie them to any hard violence at least from what we found with our, with our evidence and everything that we were doing. Everything was mostly gambling and just selling drugs. I mean, listen, I'm sure a ton of the drugs that they sold, because it did have fentanyl in it, were tied to overdoses. We didn't tie them directly, so we couldn't really pin them with any murder charges or anything like that. So it's just the weight distribution. When we talk about drug gangs and violence, th- there's a mystique that Hollywood loves to portray about the drugs, the drug smuggler, about hey it's just a poor misunderstood guy he's trying to make a living and you know he comes from an economically depressed area or background whatever it might be but i think what they do is they tend to lose sight of the impact it has on everybody else that lives in our community because these guys when i say guys i mean men and women i'm not a narrowing this down as one gender they overrun communities they're like a cancer yeah you're right you're right and actually with this case the one that was in charge of the gambling ring was a female. She was in charge of the whole ring. So it was, uh, it was men and women uh, doing all of this. But you're right. They, they make such a drastic impact on the community that surrounds them. And to get them off the streets for just that moment, it really felt good. So you had great success on that one. That was one case. I'm sure you have literally hundreds of others that may not have hit the main press. Those seem to be the ones that that wind that, that grind you down. Yeah, there's a there's a hundreds of other cases. I mean, we've been we've done cases, we've done just straight up street buys. You know, there's hundreds of them. The one I got hurt on was a straight up street buy. We were just doing uh, typical enforcement out during narcotics on in the Lower East Side, and fortunately, a kid ran. He decided to fight with me, and I tore my shoulder. That's very common. In, I've had shoulder surgery. I've had multiple hand surgeries. I've got a bad knee. I've got a bad back. And by the way, some would say, my wife, sometimes I tell you, I got a bad attitude. Uh, All those can be (laughs) directly traced to a career in law enforcement. Uh, We're talking with Robert Garland. He is a member of the NYPD. He's a detective. He's worked narcotics investigation for a long time. And he's also a CEO of Fund thefirst.com catch all the episodes of law enforcement today's show is a podcast for free do a google search for law enforcement today podcast or just go to letradioshow.com click the be heard tab and you'll find us right there we're gonna take a short break we'll be right back
Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Robert Garland from the NYPD and also CEO of Fund the First. Go online to fundthefirst.com. They do verified. These are real deal fundraisers for first responders, military, uh, other medical people as well. Fundthefirst.com. Your career in law enforcement, how long has it been so far? I'm going on 13 years. So you're kind of stuck in the middle. You're at the point where... You know, you're not a rookie, you're a seasoned officer, you're really experienced, you know what you're doing, and for many people at 13, 14, 15 years, they're, they're counting down the days before they can retire. Honest assessment, where are you at in your career? Um, I'm counting down the days. <laughs> I get it, I'm 100%. There. I, yeah, yeah, I'm there. I, I had a, even though 13 years may not sound like a lot, you know, where I am and I work, we've done so much. Without our, throughout our careers, and I started I started my career in Midtown. I went from Midtown South to Midtown North. Um, then I did anti crime. Then I went to Grand Larson Task Force, and then I went to Narcotics. And now I'm in in the 13th Precinct Detective Squad, and I handle missing persons. It's a lot. It's a lot of information to absorb. It's a lot going on, and 13 years is it's like a lifetime. Plus, if you're like me, that amount of time, it's a lot of horror shows. It's not just, hey, occasional bad thing happens. Bad things happen all the time. May may not always be directed at you. Sometimes it's your fellow officers. And sometimes it's the victims you see. I'm sure you've seen no shortage of violence in your career. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate. There's, there's one case that always sticks out of my mind, and it'll probably never leave. And... I was working, I was in Midtown North doing patrol, so uniform patrol in a car, and there was one night where a bus was driving in front of me, and I see people jumping out of the bus while it's moving, screaming, yelling. I thought it was a fight. We pull over, and we look down, and it ran over a young man. And that scene right there was just, it was horrific, and it was horrible to see and to have to notify his family and everything that was going on. It was just horrible. The bus driver, though, he went to jail, the manslaughter. He ended up being drunk. So brought him to justice in that way, but it just wasn't enough. And that will always live in the back of my head. That was like one of the worst things I've ever seen in my career. One of the worst things I ever had to do in my career, Robert, is the death notifications. There, there's just no way of letting a family member know that their loved one has been killed or died, whatever it might be. And there's no way of doing it where it's okay it, it just i don't know how to describe it and i'm i'll give you an example we would get a call hey call the dispatcher on the phone so you call the dispatcher say hey you gotta do a death notification for out of state their 25 year old son so and so was killed in a car accident and they have to go to their house and, and you knock on the door and you say are you so and so and are you, yes what can i do for you blah, blah blah sorry got some bad news for you and the only way you can do it is just tell them outright what happened and the reactions you get quite often are shock, disbelief, anger, and it's it's heartbreaking to see the response of these people. It really is. It really is. But you know, as, as hard as it is, it's also you're going there and you're supporting this family as well. It's not just about telling them and notifying them. You're actually bringing that support system to them for a moment. 
you know, and that's really important. And I'm sure those families, when we do it, you know, I know they know, you know, and I'm sure you know this as well. And actually to tie back into fund the first, you know, we make notifications like that all the time. They're not necessarily the same as notification matter. It's a matter in which we call families that have lost loved ones and we let them know that we're here as a support system as well, not just a platform. Kudos to you for doing that. You you mentioned earlier in the conversation you're married to a police officer, correct? Correct. I uh, I met my wife Vanessa in the police academy, and we actually came out to the same precinct together. And I forced her to go out with me one night, and now we have three children together. <laughs> Congratulations to you. My number one question is, how do you two balance two police careers and then a family life, and try to have that that healthy mental attitude when you're away from the job? So when we started dating, you know, we were able to do whatever we wanted, right? But once once she got pregnant, I made a decision to go to narcotics, and she made a decision to take a stable approach in her career. So it was easy to manage, even though for basically six and a half, seven years, I was never home. And that was difficult, really difficult to deal with, not being home so much. You know, leaving at 9 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, and not getting home until 1 in the, 1 in the morning, and really not seeing my kids at all. So now where we're at, we work opposite schedules. We're home together for a little bit in the afternoon. So it's a lot, a lot better, and it's easier to manage uh, right now. The one upside to this I could see, I, I was always taught later on in life, after leaving police work, there's a shift in the, the attitude. It's like, hey, talk to your spouse. Let them know you had a rough day and give them a little bit of details about what happened. Back when I was policing, it was the mindset of, look, I don't want her to worry more. So I didn't really tell a lot about what's going on. And I unfortunately wound up isolating. And that had a very negative effect uh, on a relationship. Do you guys actually say, hey, look, I had a horrible day. This is what happened. Now we do. We're working towards that a little bit more. But I did the same thing in narcotics. I would never really say what was going on if, you know, there was a horrible execution of a search warrant, but that was a really dangerous situation. Or even when we were doing search warrants, you know, I would just say, hey, you know, we're out on a, we're out on a warrant right now. And that was it. You know, because I felt the same way. You know, I just didn't want her to worry about things. But at the same time, I do want her to worry, you know. And I want to worry about her because she's out there every day also. Yeah, that's the, the negative side. Of it. You know what what that entails. One of the things is, and I, I this is again, you will understand it right away. And I can't always tell someone in a way that makes sense that has not done police work. You are aware that there is a threat. You are aware that you are a target, and that bad things can happen. But that doesn't sit in the front of your mind because if it did, we'd never leave the squad room. We'd never leave the station. We'd never get out of the car. Uh, it was very rare that you'd say, "Oh, this is a bad one." You know, and you got to really watch yourself. So I can see your approach of not wanting to tell her either, because I didn't want to even think about that part of it. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a uh, it's a tough burden to to put on your shoulders. You know, to to tell and then have to worry about what she's thinking as well. Last question before we talk about fun. The first, how do you handle the questions when you go to the barbecue and say, "Hey, did you ever shoot anybody?" Oh, man. I hate that question. Uh, I hate it. Yeah, that. You know what? We hang out with all cops for the most part. You know, all retired cops, all, all active cops. I have gotten those questions before at random. Like, I coach my older guy's baseball team, and we'll be on the baseball field, and one of the parents will just come up to me at random. Hey, you ever shoot anybody? And it's like, what are you asking that question for? Right. 
<laughs> you know, why are you asking that? I just ignore it. You know, I don't, I don't, I'll never understand those types of questions. It's just, I don't know. I got to the point where I became very rude. I would say, why would I want to have a conversation about the worst moment of my life with a complete stranger over a beer at a barbecue? And they, they would go like, you don't have to be like that. And I would respond with, yes, I do. We're getting ready to run out of time. I want to talk about Fund the First. This is a great outfit you have. A brief overview of what you do. Sure. So fundthefirst.com is a verified crowdfunding platform for our nation's heroes. So if you're familiar with the crowdfunding space and doing fundraisers, there's never really a true vetted or verified source for first responders, military, and medical professionals to raise money without having to worry about fraud, scams, duplicate campaigns, and what and things like that. So that's what we have here. We, to date, again, I know I mentioned earlier, but I'll mention it again, we have over 145 fundraising campaigns that have surpassed $920,000 combined and growing. So every day we're getting new campaigns, we're assisting people um, in their fundraising needs, and we're here to support you guys. One of the things I find really awesome about what you do it's great that you help individuals but people can also can create fundraising campaigns for their underfunded departments yeah we have a couple um we have one that i believe in missouri or mississippi um they're a fire firehouse that doesn't have the proper amount of funds and actually their mayor was actually their fire chief also small town um is looking to raise money for them and then they there's a couple of other campaigns for canines that we've had. We have one upstate New York that they wanted to reinstate their canine program, but they didn't have the proper funds to do it. So this one officer came forward and went to the, the town board and said, listen, if I could raise 10000 can you guys match it or even surpass it? And they said yes. And he did it on our platform. That's, Pretty cool. That's so fun. com. Check it out. They're also on social media as well. Robert Garland, we got to do this again. Thanks so much for being guest on the show and thanks for your service. All very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today Show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.